0: So here we go, Scuba Obsessed a weekly podcast. We talk about all things scuba diving, from cool new gear to places to dive and scuba new news. Scuba Obsessed episode three hundred and sixty-seven is recorded live, May seventeenth, twenty eighteen. Welcome back to Scuba Obsessed. I'm Darren Gilson coming to you from the southwest side of the great state of Michigan, where it is still a tad squishy. Joining me this week, we have Mac, the dive mentor. How are you doing today, Mac? I'm
1: doing very well. I think we've had a nice two days of sunshine, mild weather,
0: and hopefully it'll start drying up the ground. Yeah, we we need a little bit of dry. Oh, it's, uh, you know, my, my, my basement is... Well, it's a it's a most what I call a mostly dry basement. Occasionally, water when it comes the correct or incorrect direction, it will make a little bit of leaking going on. And uh, so, I've I've had a little bit of that experience this last week. Oh, but I I did put uh, a semi worth of gravel in the driveway, so at least uh, we're not squishing down into the uh, sinkholes.
1: Well, I have learned in any basement one. Put down two-by-fours or something to put the boxes on. Yes. Number two, don't use cardboard boxes in the basement. (laughs) Yes. You better put plastic those big tubs.
0: Yeah. Yeah, because cardboard just likes to laminate itself right to the basement floor. And it doesn't even, you don't even have to have water for that to happen. Just, you know, your dehumidifier die for a couple days and you'll have that. I don't don't know if people in the other parts of the country need dehumidifiers if they have basements, but you certainly do here in Michigan.
1: And you need the humidifier topside during the winter, otherwise you're going to arc and spark. Yes, <laughs> I can. I, I've gotten out of my car, grabbed my keys, touched that lock, and the garage is dark. So, and you can—you know, must be about a, a two-inch arc from my hand to that door when <laughs> I hit the key,
0: well, and that still hurts. I—I I think you might be able to qualify for uh, a role on X Men then. <laughs> <laughs> I, I'd rather not, but. <laughs> You've, you've got superpowers. I
1: think it's because I have nylon and I run it across the seat when I get out of the car and I don't <laughs> grab the door to ground myself. I get yeah. out.
0: So I charge myself really good. Yeah, I hear that's really great if you do that, at the gas pump too.
1: I hear that could be quite explosive.
0: <laughs> I'd like to thank everybody who has joined us this week in the chat room. Uh, let me bring that chat room to the front. Uh, we have Derek and Eric are both joining us, and I'm sure more will filter in as we, we get to going. So let's, um, we got a full news cycle this week. For some reason, some weeks we'll only have a, a couple articles, and this week we have a ton of them. So we're going to go ahead and jump right on into the news. Uh, in, in this first one, I believe this comes from Undercurrent Magazine, January 2018. It says another right Cocos Tiger Shard attack. Is that Cocos? Is that how you say it? Cacos? Cocos? I'm not real sure. I hear people say Cacos, but that does not... That's spelled more Coco. C-O-C-O-S. Uh, a lucky 30-year-old German male diver escaped intact after being attacked by a tiger shark near near uh, Mantalutia Island, Isle del Cocos, Costa Rica. On April 28th, the animal bit into his tank N is BC, but he managed to free himself from his rig and swim to the surface while the shark ripped his gear to pieces. As other divers looked on, he was shaken but unhurt. Last November, an American died after a tiger shark attack at the same location. This is the sixth confirmed unprovoked shark attack in Costa Rican waters since dive records began. I'm
1: surprised somebody did not have a video.
0: With e- with everybody having GoPros and stuff, you'd have thought that somebody would have. Uh, and I, and I think yeah, any- uh, I mean, go ahead. Go ahead. <laughs> oh, oh, chat, chat room's gonna. I don't know if they're asking for the link. I didn't have a link to that one, so let me just. Um, if you go ahead and, and Google for Undercurrent January 2018, uh, if
1: you're not familiar, we used to get Undercurrent years ago. Uh, the reason we got it because it was unbiased and it told you the way it was. It wasn't a good resort. They told you and they didn't like the regulator. They told you. Uh, and. Their prices went up a little bit. and The club has not rejoined it, but maybe we might just do that again.
0: Well, Undercurrent, I think you can maybe you can get that for free. Uh, the website is www.undercurrent.org.
1: Yeah, you can get certain articles, but to get the whole item, you know, all the whole, all the articles, uh-huh, uh, you got to be. Yeah,
0: they they're they're trying to encourage you to subscribe then. And then another article, which I think, came, those teasers. Yeah, and I think another article that came from them is "Don't flame your mask." And they say that last month uh, they reported to their subscribers a few hollis masks had shattered when divers hit the water, and now they have found out the culprit. It wasn't the mask, but actually the diver. They say, as you know, you must polish the inside surface of the mask to remove the coating and prevent it from fogging. However, some divers came up with a little bit of a shortcut. Uh, they tried to burn the coating off with a cigarette lighter. The downside is that this can weaken the tempered glass and may result in frameless single-face plate masks shattering on impact with the water. They said especially if the strap is pulled so tight it stresses the weakened glass. They say the proper way to remove the film is to polish the glass with a gentle abrasive such as old-fashioned white toothpaste. But that sounds like uh, one of those... Ah, here here's a quick way of getting it done and then we have another article from undercurrent and this one is called me too in the dive industry uh yo-yo wang was getting ready for a barbecue night aboard the galapagos aggressor 3 last september when she stepped out of the bathroom after the shower to get dressed she realized there's a pair of creepy eyes peering right into my room through the blinds that were not closed properly Wang panicked and froze, but she could clearly tell it was somebody wearing a grayish hoodie. She stepped back into the bathroom to get dressed and quickly opened the door of her cabin just to see a gray-hooded figure fleeing towards the captain's room. Wang gathered her nerve and went upstairs to barbecue. All the divers and crews were there, but there was only one person wearing the exact gray hoodie uh, I saw on the peeper. Peeking cow. Saw... Peeper. Oh, peeper. Okay. Um, I'm... Didn't quite get it there for a second. The captain, Rufino Chile, Wang said, he acted as if nothing had happened. I was astonished and scared because I thought the crew would, no crew would stand behind me if I accused the captain. So I chose to stay silent and didn't tell any of the divers. Wang, a 22 year old economics PhD candidate at the University of Chicago, contacted the aggressor fleet after a trip. CEO Wayne Hassan told her they would investigate. A month later, he told Wang that Captain Chile had admitted to peeping but that according to Ecuadorian law, the captain can't be fired or demoted and can't be charged in court unless she showed up in Ecuador to make a case. Wang asked for more concrete solutions from Aggressor, but no one replied. She then pos- posted her experience online to Scuba, Gore Scuba Board, and Aggressor's Facebook page. That's how she found out that a woman on the dive trip was also harassed by Chile, but Aggressor deleted the post when friends of hers who were planning to take the Galapagos aggressor contacted a company about diver security. A staff member defended his company's actions and questioned Wang's motive, saying it's possible that a young girl, she might've wanted to get more attention by exaggerating the story, which I'm going to interject here. And that's exactly what everybody who wants to say, if, if you're trying to save your bacon, that's just going to get everybody riled up. Uh, so much for the values the aggressor fleet holds towards its passenger, Wang says. I was astonished by the vulnerability of female diver security and the inability of this seemingly prestigious company to resolve the sexual harassment case. Wang's tale is not an isolated one. Through the decade, women divers experience everything from what are you doing here looks as they approach the dive boat to condescending comments when buying or ending gear to sexually charged actions that go from mildly flirtatious to cross-the-line harassment and undercurrents book. There's a cockroach in my regulator. Three instances are reported in which female novice divers are groped underwater by their instructors with no way to bail out. So we asked our readers at the Me Too stories, and a few had some back-in-the-day tales that were more than norm than they should have been. Ann Keller, Irving, Texas, remember she was the only woman in class, and she took her Now Open Water course 40 years ago. It was apparent they didn't think girls should be divers. They were productive provocative girly posters in the classroom area. It was definitely considered a a manly sport back then. Towards the end of the training, I was in the pool with foil inside my mask to block my vision. The instructor turned off my air, pinched my nipple to see how I'd react. I was shocked, but I was in no position to complain. I wanted my C-cart. All those stories are still happening to dive industry, especially when Me Too movement caught fire in the U.S. might have caught on in other more remote parts of the world. We also wondered whether sexual harassment training is part of the dive training curriculum these days, and whether issues are addressed differently or more in depth. After all, a great number of dive instructors are men between age 18 and 30 who become instructors and guides at destinations off the beaten path. So we contacted all the dive training agencies as well as resorts and liverboards in far-flung places to see how they handle these matters. We only got a few responses, which seemed to suggest the dive industry in general still doesn't want to talk about this issue. He seemed to give me a hard time because I was a woman. Most respondents we got from women were less than less about sexual harassment, more about being bullied and belittled. Charlene Baker, a trimix diver who has owned a dive shop in Calgary, Alberta, for 24 years, was en route to a dive trip in Vancouver Island last year and stopped at a dive shop with her twin 130 cubic feet tank filled up. The employee there was confused why I need such big tanks. There's no question what kind of dive I was planning on doing, but I went through 30 minutes of questions. According to staff, I was diving the wrong equipment. My dive buddies, all men have stopped many times this location to get their tanks filled and they've never been asked a single question about why they're diving with tanks too big for them. Kathy O'Connor, Virginia Beach, California was with her husband in Aruba. They got the dive gear in the boat when the dive guide asked her how many dives she had done. I told him 400 plus. He said, that's impossible and made me disassemble and reassemble the dive gear. Then he told me he'd be watching me very carefully and dive because he didn't believe me. I'm petite older woman and admit I don't look very outdoorsy, but he seemed to be giving me a hard time because I'm a woman and claimed to know what I was doing. Maybe Sherry Kimes, Palm Springs, California had the same dive guide. Hers in Aruba was most annoying. She'd ever had. I can think of all the other divers or men. We had a giant stride entry from the back of the boat. I had my gear in order. I had done a thousand dives They kept rearranging my gear and implying I don't know what I was doing. I think I finally told him to butt out and just jumped in. None of the other divers, including my husband, experienced this. Guess I wasn't capable of arranging my gear because I was a female. But overall, my experiences, primarily in the Caribbean and Southeast Asia, were fine. Other readers also wrote to say their dive trips went on without any hitches. But last year, one California reader who wants to stay anonymous had the worst experience we've heard of. During a party night in a Galapagos liveaboard trip, one crew member put his fingers in a place where they shouldn't have been. It was shock- It was a shocking assault, and I'm still upset about it. In my 50s and professional writer, neither a porn actress nor somebody with victim written on their forehead. Uh, I've even tried to get Patty on board to help sort out Internet problems. So how do training agencies deal with these matters? Whoops. Oh, thanks, er- Eric. Eric in the chat room. So how do training agencies deal with these matters when they train instructors? Obviously, it should be part of the curriculum, perhaps even a broader diversity training session, especially important because most students are a bunch of hormone-directed guys, 18, much older, who have more than a few bikini-clad women in their classes, on their dive boats, and as co-workers. We've received a couple of comments from readers who trained and work as dive masters in the United Kingdom, where they say the sensitivities and comments toward women aren't that much different. While doing dive master training in 2000, Debbie Morey, North Chesterfield, Virginia instructor who wore shorts and no underwear, the legs were loose, and he sat in the desk in front of me, one leg up, and one leg down, she says. I finished the program despite him. It made me very uncomfortable, and thinking back on it, I should have said something. Lisa Thomas, managing director for New Dawn Dive Center in Working Surrey, England, says sex discrimination in the dive industry is rife there, and a lot of bad behavior comes From her students, I was about to get out of the dive boat and was told, there's no room for you, love. Luckily, the other instructor told the students who made this comment that they had better let their instructor on board or they wouldn't get taught. I am permanently on a mission to stamp out sexism and have so many examples, personal ones, and directed towards customers, Thomas said. I even tried to get Patty on board to help sort out the inherent problem. We asked both Patty and Nowy how they handle these problems, but neither responded, perhaps a reflection that they don't. However, Stephanie Malee, Chief Operating Officer of STI, TDI, ERDI, was ready to talk, and she recently wrote an article on the topic for her agency's website. Check out her piece, Being Young and Female in an Old Man's Industry, and we'll have the links in the show notes. When it comes to treating women divers badly, I think it happens less than it did 20 years ago, she said. I don't hear as many stories about it. I think people are finally waking up. Still, she says dive training agencies are unable to be hands-on supervisors. We don't train directly. We oversee the training standards, so we don't have face-to-face interaction or hands-on touch. However, we get sexual harassment complaint filed. If an action needs to be taken, we take it swiftly. It's up to the employers to handle bad staff, says Alex Bryant, part owner of Emperor Fleet Liverboards, which cruise around the Red Sea and Maldives in Indonesia. In general, this has always been an issue in places like these. Unfortunately, most top dive destinations are in developing world where education is still limited. And cultures are very male-dominated. The type of people who work in the dive industry, as a majority, are also people who have tried to escape the real world, therefore don't take their job very seriously and are there for a bit of fun. This attitude applies even the more so outside the water where they want and expect to have fun. It's therefore the responsibility of the employer to train and set certain expectations of our staff, but also quickly remove any who show the wrong attitude towards safety and respect towards clients. In the end, I feel this is what it boils down to respect for all people relevant of race, age, religion, or gender. And then there's nothing here that implies sexual harassment. With a lot of focus on Me Too in the U.S. and a little tension played in other parts, there continues to be a clash on how women are seen and treated in the dive industry. A perfect example of the clash is a photo posted on Facebook of Nad Limbert Resort in Indonesia's Limbert Strait. In it, Nando, an employee who also an in-house artist, is showing off his new artwork of the resort's special edition t-shirts. The shirts are worn by two women standing on either side of Nando with their backs towards the camera. Nando is facing his front with his hands extended down to look like they're cupping the woman's backsides wearing a big smile. Immediately, comments were posted. The photo was sexist and offensive. The resort over Simon replied that one woman with a comment like, if you don't like it, then don't come here. The resort later erased all comments and pinned this one said, so far in this post, We've been told how men are stupid. This woman has no self-respect if she takes part in a joke such as this, that God will somehow take vengeance on this post to top it off at sexual harassment. We've all been told that we should have taken it down. We will not censor this post as there is nothing in here that implies sexual harassment. Nando's hands is not grabbing anything. In fact, we're not even touching. It's just a set-up photo with a bit of fun and two lady bosses. You're welcome to disagree, but insulting people is not required. Perhaps it comes down to cultural views. When asked. Sources oversees what they thought of the photo. Most said it was funny side of it. They wouldn't even look twice. One is that Miranda Coverdale, owner of Dive in Limba in North Sawasi, not far from, oh, I'm not going to say the name anymore. Nat is one of the few diving a- operations that genuinely care for its staff and environment. And they have a sense of humor too. This is no harm done here. This is coming from a woman who's worked many years in Egypt, Sudan, and Asia. But Mealy S T S D I T D I would certainly not let her company post that photo i don't see the point of it it's not selling anything and i find it offensive and then doing a me too was imperative so in a time when so much culture and political changes happen the points of views about these changes are still taking time to shift how should the dive industry interact with women treat them like queens they are says mealy after all they control the family purse strings i quoted research in my article that women are the ones making the financial decisions. As head of the household, so the dive industry is not giving credibility women calling them with trip questions or taking their training classes. It's doing the industry as a whole a gigantic disservice. It's not only morally wrong, it's negatively affecting growth. Divers of both genders should show their kids how diving should be a general, neutral sport, Mealy adds, what kids see at home in its ultra culture they mimic. My son knows nothing different between men and women divers. Mom and dad own a dive company together in their equal playing field. I take them out for snorkeling trips. It's refreshing to see the majority of people don't care who's on a trip as long as they can get a chance to have fun. Women like to offer each other support and feedback, often online. The word of mouth can help hinder a dive business. Dive master Sarah Richard launched Girls at Scuba, the largest website for female scuba diving community, www.girlsthatscuba.com. Part of the reason I set up the site to discuss the challenges and obstacles on being a female In a male-dominated industry, Richard said the article for Shape about this topic. She also set up her own forum on the site to help other women who may be having negative experience in the industry. I don't think the Me Too was imperative with the all-female groups. It allows members to stand up for themselves and know they have support. Social media is also important for speaking out, like when Yayo Wang posted about her Captain Snooper experience aboard the Galapagos Aggressor. It's good to check online and see if there's a negative response to a certain dive operator, but having people used to speak up and having the consonant do so is important. There's no place for sexual harassment belitting women belittling women belittling, excuse me, belittling of women to happen in the dive industry or anywhere. And just as the Me Too movement here in the US, women speaking out about the ill treatment and bad situation they faced is leading to a lot of bed apples being thrown out and a lot of light shone on long, dark places. Dive trips should be fun for everyone. Women should be able to enjoy themselves while having to fend off idiots. The more women speak up and call out the offending idiots, the more scuba industry will and should have to ensure that there's places on the dive boat for everyone.
1: And that was written by Vanessa Richardson, and she's a senior editor of Undercurrent and has been for the last 10 years.
0: Yeah, and that's, that's unfortunate that uh, you ha- you have that sort of situations. Um, I don't think this is isolated to the dive industry. I think that this is going to happen in any industry. Uh, but you've got to factor in uh, location to this. Um, you're, you're going to parts of the world where things aren't as they are here and they're by no means perfect here. And then as I talked about in the articles, you've got people who are, escaping uh you know they they said it is uh people were just taking time off from their other careers to do to do to be in the professional diving industry but i also think there are people who are leaving north america for getting in trouble in a variety of things which could include this uh and just finding other locations to to practice that in so the question is is this any higher prevalence in this as there is in the world or is scuba diving it more likely to happen?
1: I don't know. I Having uh, helped give classes, present classes uh, with both men and women or, and young adults in a college setting, uh, my daughter for one and her friend, I, I never teach my own kid even though I'm teaching around. <laughs> and or if I do a checkout, I don't check out my own. I would check out her friend as opposed to, you know, So there's none of this. I usually am harder on my own kid, if you know what I mean. Yeah. But I have seen some of this atmosphere in a lot of, and it is male-oriented or dominated sport. Skydiving is one. There's a lot more aggressive men skiers than women. And I think you see this macho issue a little bit, especially in the younger guys, throughout. That's the way they are, it appears. can't remember. It's been a long time since I was a kid. But by the same token, I think, it' would be interesting to hear about the women on in uh, our dive club. i would hope that we treat the ladies as we treat ourselves and our you know our other dive buddies
0: yeah because i I certainly want more uh female divers uh, we we'd love to have a better mix in a dive club i think we're probably i mean we haven't we have always at least since i've been in the club we've always had female divers uh, and I think the ratio oh. has Im- has improved over the over the years?
1: Well, we've had a female president for the last five, yeah. which is always nice. Yeah, I, I like it also because a different perspective. Because we, we, I look at things different than my wife, for example. So it's good having some feedback and some check. And I notice in, in skydiving industry, for example, um, those ladies are pretty much confident in what they can do and what they can't do. And you generally don't mess with those ladies. And They have some really fantastic organizations, you know, within the sport itself. So it's not like they have to tag with the guys. It's like they went out and got their own stuff and their own organization, you know. And some of theirs is a little risque because it's their group and it's not a guy's group. group. And there's absolutely nothing wrong with that. Right. But it's still an interesting article. It would be interesting to get the feedback from other people.
0: And, and there's no excuses for it, guys. If if you are in a position as an instructor or a captain doing this, it's just not acceptable. Uh, not sure that it ever was acceptable, but it's, it's certainly not now. Well,
1: I know this is a little longer article than most that we talk about, but it, it's an important item, and it's something that should be talked about by a lot of the divers and dive clubs and as a reinforcement to make sure we are doing the things the way we should be doing. You
0: know, and a key item, like you said, is respect for each other. Yeah, and yeah, because there are several things. This was a very broad article. It Was I think she probably could have broken us out into three and had each of them as a as an individual topic. But one of them was just not trusting that women were capable of it, and I think that's a really outdated idea. Uh, and certainly, I mean, the, I, it, they're going to be able to do it better in many cases, and or as well, if not better in many cases, when I, when I'm the first comes to mind is better is, uh, breath. Uh, most of them are much better at air management than the guys on average, but as far as ability training knowledge, there really should not be any difference between the sexes. I have not seen any studies studies that say metabolism is different where a woman is incapable of diving to different depths. So, um, it'd be interesting to, to get both sides of it. Uh, Is there, is this something where somebody's anecdotally, and that's probably not a correct word, but uh, is this something that they've, they've developed over time? Is it going to be something they've observed uh, with uh, tourism? uh, Why they would think that they need to question women more than men?
1: Well, that's surprising to me from the aspect that normally when you're on a cattle boat or any of that, are they not looking at your C cards and/or your logbook entries to see if you are current, and that would give you also an awesome indication of their experience level? Well,
0: and then she had the one—the one, the one uh, thing on the cattle boat was just the students that were coming on the boat. You know that they had assumed that you know that that was a woman, uh, that she could not possibly be the instructor, and then you know their frame of mind was such that they were down there to. To get lucky, so they were going to harass somebody, which I'm not. I'm not sure if that does that work. I, I can't believe that even if you're you're trying to date, flirt, or pick up somebody, that harassing has really ever done ever worked. So, but maybe these guys uh, <laughs> haven't learned that yet. So this is something for I think that there needs to be a broader movement within the dive industry to come up with protocols to address this. You know, because this I mean the the hotel industry certainly must have ways of addressing this. You know, if you're on a liveaboard,
1: well, the one that was a physical altercation with the young lady that we didn't go into details, the yeah. to, those are legal items, nothing to do with diving.
0: Right. You know, I mean, there's laws against that already. Yeah. But the things are so much worse. Uh I can certainly understand if 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 you're on shore and you're at a nightclub and something happens like that or you're in a business, it's easy just to I'm not going to say it's easy, but you have the option of going outside and down the street and calling the police. But when you're on a boat, that's already contained space. Yeah. You, know, you, you, I can understand why somebody might hesitate on making a big deal out it until they feel that they're at a, a place where there's where they can feel safe to report it.
1: Well, maybe I'll get some feedback. I'd be yeah uh, interested in it. And hopefully if there's any yeah. ladies and or, gentlemen out there that have something to say about the topic. I'd like to hear about it.
0: Yeah. And and if somebody is, is has some knowledge or depth into it, I I could see us doing a couple episodes just on this. It'd be nice to have some experts in the area who could uh, uh comment in. So so let's talk gold. The yes. This one's out of the Miami Herald, if you remember back a long time ago, and I'm sure we covered it at the time. Uh, A 17th century bar of gold was stolen from a Key West museum in 2010. It was valued at $550,000, the Mel Fisher Maritime Heritage Museum. Uh, It has gone to trial. The trial of alleged accomplice of the 2010 theft of the 17th century bar of gold opened this week in federal court. Gerald Goldman is on trial for the theft that his alleged cohort had already admitted to in exchange for a lighter sentence. A jury was seated Tuesday, and opening set statements are set to begin at 1.45 p.m. at the U.S. District Court in Key West. Goldman is accused of acting as a lookout at 5.15 p.m. August 18, 2010, so Richard Stephen Johnson could break in the display case at the Mel Fisher Maritime Heritage Museum, 200 Green Street, and grab the gold bar which is worth an estimated $550,000. Johnson is set for sentencing. 10 a.m. July 2030 is not on the prosecution's witness list, however. Six people are, including an archaeologist that works with the museum. Both the arrested in January and charged with conspiracy to commit the offense against the United States and also theft of major artwork. The charges carry up to 15 years in prison above conviction. Federal law defines the object of cultural heritage as an item that is over 100 years old and worth more than $5,000. Initially, prosecutors said the bar hadn't been recovered, but pre-trial motions say a portion of the bar has been found and will be the focus of testimony. Judge Jose Martinez is presiding over the case. The bar is recovered from the Santa Margarita shipwreck in 1980 by the late Key West shipwreck hunter Mel Fisher and his crew while they searched for the Margarita and the Nustra Senor de Atocha galleons that had been on display in the museum for more than 20 years in a case designed so that visitors could reach in and lift the bar. And they've got, their, in the article, they show uh, a few photos taken from security camera. Love to find something like that, wouldn't you? I'd like to find it in the water. I mean, the display case seems like that's cheating a little bit. I'm just surprised that people didn't have long, good fingernails and sort of scraped
1: it a little bit. <laughs> you just you just take a little bit off each time? Well, yeah, you know, that's why they had the ridges on your coin, just so you couldn't shave around the edges.
0: Well, it's certainly an interesting item, and I can remember seeing that. Uh, they're showing that you're lifting the bar. But when you're letting every everybody handle it, why all of a sudden is this considered a historical uh, – I mean, they they couldn't have cared that it was that much of an artifact – because you're letting everybody just handle it.
1: How how do you screw up a gold bar and you're looking at it? It's not it's not perfectly smooth. It didn't have all sorts of fancy writing on it. It's a nice ingot. Well, so I, I could see that. I mean, was, how, how do you?
0: You're not going to hurt it by playing with it. No, it it's, it's certainly an interesting attraction. But they didn't say how they got it out. Maybe that will come out in the trial. Did they uh, somehow break the glass or figure out a way of or this plexiglass? or figure out a way of positioning to get it out, or did they uh, just pull the bar through? You know, f- they figured that they could just manhandle it through the opening. Um, but it's interesting how this is, this always makes me nervous about these laws where something's illegal one way, but then they make it really illegal if it's something that they really don't like. In this case, because it was a uh, an item of cultural heritage that uh, finds the the charge is more. I, I, I don't understand those type of laws.
1: Well, I'm sure we will keep track and try to do a follow-up for one of our next podcasts. We should be able to know in a week or two.
0: Yeah, you should. You should. I'm I'm sure he's going to get charged. Yeah. In the chat room, Karen's saying, it looks like the picture, you grab one end, turn it, slide it out through the holes. What I'm guessing is that there's a back to it so that just the dimensions weren't quite right to ever quite get it out. Because if you look... It rested on these two plexiglass tabs. Somebody could probably get a pretty good shot of it. Uh, let's see. What's our next article? Super fit police officer. Oh, this is sad. So you would think that the being extra healthy would, would make it safer for scuba diving. And we normally don't cover all these negative stories, but uh, I I think it's in our listeners' best interest to be aware of some of the risks. So a super fit police officer died while scuba diving after she went for a run the night before. Um, this is according to an inquest. Uh, she was diving in Grand Canary and might have lost her life by being super fit. An inquest into her death of Justin Beringer found recent exercise could have played a part in a tragedy she had gone for a run the night before the dive and possibly dehydration may have caused a condition that triggers muscle damage this can affect various organs such as the heart and kidneys expert thinks the british transport police officer returned to the grand canary with her fiance last september year after they were engaged on the spanish island along with her mother and her mother's friend but four days into the holiday the 44 year old sitting born kent lost. Consciousness from 10 meters or 32 feet below the surface while in advanced scuba diving course. She was described as fit by her fiance, Tina Best, and had dived around 27 meters but lost consciousness while resurfacing. Attempts to revive her in the boat's dive boat and the nearby harbor failed, and she was pronounced dead. A post mortem examination in Spain proved inconclusive. A subsequent post mortem in the UK gave the cause of death as decompression sickness brought about by scuba diving, but said recent exercise could have played a part with a lengthy run causing, oh, goodness, radiosus? Radiosus? Yeah, so uh, if you enjoy me mispronouncing, then you're probably having fun right now. Or drinking, if it's a drinking game. Well, I hope not. People would be smashed. Uh, A form of muscle damage. Concluding that her death was accidental, coroner Eon Wade said... Justine is a short-distance runner, and she watched her health and took it very seriously. She went for a 40-minute run the night before death. She didn't seem to have suffered any ill effects, but has proposed such exercise the night before may have played some part in what happened. Miss Best, a fellow British tourist police officer, was waiting for her partner to return from the dive when she saw a commotion at the nearby harbor. Not suspecting it was her fiancé, Miss Best returned to the dive center. She told the inquest, when I got to the dive center, there were two guys in there, and they arrived and when i arrived they stood up they both looked at me and i and i like i knew they both looked like rabbits in the headlights i said is that justine one of them said i'm really sorry we did everything we could my legs gave away after that those are the
1: ones you always wonder about like what really did
0: yeah uh i mean you always say hydrate so is there some element it doesn't seem like exercising cuz it wasn't like you know if i if i went on a trip And then I ran. How many miles did she run? Didn't Uh, say. Said forty minutes. Forty minutes. (laughs) If if in my present condition, if we if we go someplace, and then I go on a trip and I run forty minutes a night before, there's going to be problems. (laughs) I'm just not in good enough shape to do that. But for somebody who's been conditioned to do that, had done it many times, it doesn't seem like a normal behavior. In fact, being a runner in my younger life if you stop running, you actually cause Charlie horses. I can remember after a season of cross country running, you know, cause the first thing everybody on the team swears when the season's done is I'm never running again. Cause you know, unless you're just mentally ill runner, it hurts. It's not fun. At least I didn't like it. Maybe that's why I didn't become a competitive runner. Uh, but you stop running and your body says that's not normal, not running. And you, and you get Charlie horses. Uh, so it, if you're conditioned for it, you should be fine.
1: I was never that athletic.
0: <laughs> yeah. Karen in the chat room, uh, is saying we see a lot of it in the ER from old ladies who fall and lay in a hard floor all night. The hard surface, not moving from pain causes circulation problems and muscle breakdown. And she's saying that this is in relation to that diagnosis. But yeah, you, you wonder, cause there's a lot of things that can go affect you know, dehydration, um, uh, mm-hmm. You know, she had probably flown to get down there. Uh, was she drinking in the? you know, uh, eating different food? You'd really like to know, especially when somebody who, for all apparent reasons, should not have had the problem she had. You'd, you'd, you'd love to find the cause so you can learn from it. And let's see, is the next one the uh, aquarium?
1: Looking for scuba volunteers.
0: So if you've ever wondered what it would be like to swim in one of the tanks packed with tropical fish, that's what Bill Bill Dossis does on a regular basis, cleaning tanks at the Oklahoma Aquarium. I've done 1,300 dives in lakes, oceans, rivers, streams, seas, and creeks, and I've probably done just as many in the aquarium. It's a lot more fun here, says Bill, a dive safety officer with the Oklahoma Aquarium. Not only does he get to spend time with the fish, but he also becomes part of the show. People come to see the divers and watch the divers. They play paper, rock, scissors with a the kid. They pose for pictures. They've assisted with a few marriage proposals, says Jamie Gaylor, volunteer coordinator with the McQuarium. Sounds fun, fun, right? Well, if you have a scuba certification, you can do this too as a volunteer. We bring them through a checkout dive. We introduce some of the practices we use. And in all honesty, it's a best dive in Oklahoma. Just to be ready to do some cleaning, it sounds like a lot of fun, but it's also a lot of work. Not only do you have to scrub the glass, but also the coral inside to make sure it's nice and clean for the fish. Since the aquarium put out a call for volunteers, they've gotten a lot of feedback. We'd like a commitment of people for at least six months and the ability to dive two times a month. We only take certified open water scuba divers. The higher the certification level, the better the chances of getting in. The first step to becoming a volunteer of any sort is to go to the Oklahoma Aquarium website. There's a Get Involved tab and a volunteer application online. Fill out some paperwork, complete a death dive, and you're on your way swimming with the fishies.
1: I like the way, though, they require a six-month guarantee you're going to work with them. Cause yeah. A lot of people would do it just uh, for opportunity to go dive in the tank.
0: Yeah, you have, you have to commit to it. I want to say uh, we've done these articles many times over the years. There's uh, aquariums in Ohio, and then you've got the Shedd Aquarium in Chicago. And they all, I think they even have a longer commitment. And some of them, I think, maybe make you do a deposit or buy gear or some combination. So each aquarium might have different rules, but they're, they're always looking for volunteers and they usually do want some sort of minimum commitment, both in duration and frequency because they invest quite a bit. And as you said, why, why not just, uh, do it once just to to say you did it. And I'm always torn because, you know, this is volunteers, you know, you know, should this be something that they pay a professional to do? Not because I think it's dangerous, but because... (laughs) Yeah, you know, this is something that has to be done.
1: Well, it's like candy stripers in a, in a hospital. My sister did that. It was a non-paying item. It was a professional entry level. You know, to, mm-hmm. uh, you're going to be a what is it, LPN, or at the time she was doing right. So I, you know, you you're generally in it because you're getting something out of it other than just to say I did it for a week or a day. Right.
0: I mean, I would certainly if I get to that point in my in my life or. I've got the time. I, would, I wouldn't I would mind committing a, a year of twice a month going to the aquarium and doing some cleanup. It would kind of, be kind of a blast. A lot of people do it, and I do it just to geek people who are going through the winter. Mm-hmm. And here's something I think they didn't volunteer to do. Oil removed from decades-old Swedish shipwreck. The diving contractors removed the oil from the wrecked research vessel Theatis more than 30 years after the vessel sank. When a fishery search vessel, Theodis, went down in 30 meters of water close to Schmogen on the coast of Sweden in 1985 and took a substantial quality, quality, quantity of fuel down with it. Quantities of the oil later escaped from the wreck and appeared periodically among the skerries on that part of the coast. What are skerries? S-K-E-R-R-I-E-S? Not sure. Uh, Norwegian specialists. Miko Marine said it had been asked by the Swedish Sea and Water Authority to, if the Mosiko hull penetration tool could be used to remove any oil remaining in the wreck, but the Oslo-based company was too involved in other projects to bid for the work of the time. Instead, Swedish dive company Marine Woods applied for and won the contract on the basis using the Mosiko electric remotely operated hot tap technology. The entire remediation work lasted for 13 days and was carried out by Marine Works AB the support from Miko Marine AS. We are very pleased with the cleanup of the Thetis and is seen as a pilot project, said Krister Larsen of Sea and Water Authority. The method of examining and then cleaning up the wreck by using remote-controlled underwater robots worked and the oil on board was taken care of and no longer poses any environmental risk in this delicate archipelago. The Swedish Sea and Water Authority has only recently published its conclusion on the Thetis Project and Mosquito part was part of which was completed over two days in December last year. Two Miko specialists joined Marine Works dive team aboard their catamaran and took a single Mosquito. I'm, I'm probably just completely slaughtering this M-O-S-K-I-T-O, TO Mosquito to wreck. The wreck located 30 minutes from the port of Kungsham. Diver survey had identified the optimum penetration points of the wreck which were cleaned of marine growth by hand and by remotely operated vehicles to ensure secure fitting with the Mosquito's three electric magnetic feet. Marine work divers had found substantial openings in tank filling pipes through which much of the oil had already escaped. Nevertheless, over the following two days, the port side aft tank and engine room were drilled and the 730 liters of oil that remained was removed from the wreck. The system has now been demonstrated on three separate occasions which has been used to penetrate the oil tanks of wreck, attach a hose and pump, and then extract the oil in a single operation. It recently removed four hundred metric tons of oil from a wreck in the Thorco cloud in the Singapore Strait. Speaking on the competition of the Thetis, of the completion of the Thetis project, Nikolai Michelson, general manager of Miko Marine, said in addition to the ship and boats that have been lost in recent years, a huge number around the coast of Europe and elsewhere that have sunk during the Second World War. Many still have tanks containing heavy fuel oil, and after 70 years they are starting to decay and cause unexpected deposits of oil on the nearby coastlines. It took a great deal of research and development work for us to perfect it, but the success of these projects has affirmed our confidence in the technology and that of the clients who have been able to protect their coastlines by making use of it. So this is a fancy way of saying an ROV that can drill a hole in the tank and suck out the oil? Basically, when they talk about hot tapping mm-hmm.
1: <clears throat> excuse me, or pressure tapping, it's, like I said, a method of making a connection to an existing pipe or pressure vessel or pressure wall without interrupting or having to empty the tank. And that way you can do other items while you're taking out the
0: fuel. Interesting. Let's see, if you're down in the... California area Fish and Game Commission adopts emergency regulations to increase purple sea urchin bag limits in Sonoma and Mendocino counties. At its April 2018 meeting, the California Fish and Game Commission adopted emergency regulations to increase the daily bag limit for the purple sea urchins taken while skin or scuba diving off those two counties only. Purple sea urchins fall under the general invertebrate bag limit of 35 per day, but emergency regulations now in effect will allow the daily bag limit of 20 gallons with no limit on possession. The emergency regulation will remain in effect for 180 days until November 6, 2018, unless extended by the Commission. Upon expiration, the bag limit will turn to 35. A recent explosion in purple sea urchin populations off Northern California has prompted requests for increased daily bag limits as an option to reduce purple sea urchin numbers. The increase in purple urchin population is one of the s- several extreme environmental conditions contributing to widespread collapse of northern California kelp forests. The California Department of Fish and Wildlife is collaborating with commercial divers, academic researchers, stakeholders to clear purple sea urchins, in a series of test pilots in order to study the effectiveness in clearing on restoring the bull kelp ec- ecosystem. cdf W and its partners are working on permits and procedures to conduct, un, uh, to conduct controlled experiments to evaluate smashing compared to, compared to collecting purple sea urchins in these test pilots or test plots. CDFW reminds recreational participants that the new reg- recreational limit allows urchin collecting while skin or scuba diving by hand and that there are regulations against waste of fish. Recreational harvesters of urchins must put harvested urchins to use. Smashing and disposing of sea urchins of trash is still illegal. Besides collecting purple urchins to extract gonads for eating, urchins make good additions to, to compost material. That's what I was thinking. It's like, it, it seems like you could just throw them in the garden and that would get you by that. So it, it sounds like the only... I mean, why are people... Is is a sea urchin something that people normally go for? I mean, I'm guessing. I believe on the coast out there, it is not unusual to get sea urchin.
1: I've never, I've never had it. Oh. I'd be very curious if somebody out there again who has, uh, you know, tell us about how does it taste and how, you know, how much does it cost. I'd be very curious.
0: Now, on the, so if you're going for the gonads, do you, you know, do you have to find out the find out which spines are its legs? Is that what you're doing? <laughs> Probably not. Oh, okay. Uh, hmm. Yeah, I'd be interested to hear if it's, if they're tasty or not. I wonder if there's any if this is at all related to the starfish problem that they've been having. Um, I'm trying to remember, and it's been a while since I've seen any of the videos, but it seems like somehow the urchins and the starfish somehow had some sort of balance. But I could be misremembering it. But it sounds like they're they're allowing this to happen because the kelp is uh, being severely destroyed by the sea urchins. But it seems like a lot of these sort of things go in cycles. I mean, we we see that here in Michigan, and it seems to be invasive species. But uh, I'll notice that you'll have a certain insect, and you'll just see it everywhere. And it might be that way for a couple of years, but then eventually something else comes and decides it likes to eat whatever it was that's come in, and the populations tend to go down. Right now, I'm hoping that something comes in for these damn stink bugs. Then another, since we're on this topic of invasive species, they have a muscle machine. Late Pinot is in the bottom of a Michigan bay. said if you're a trained diver, there's no end to what You find the bottom of any major body of water, sunken treasures, beautiful coral reefs, or a a late Ford Pinot. Diver Chris Roxburgh found the latter in Lake Michigan near Old Mission Bay. The panel was stripped of its engine and other bits, and possibly could have been dumped with hopes of starting an artificial reef—a goal that seems to have achieved. As with most weird things in water, snow, and the stories how the met its watery grave, and its doctor at Scuba North in Traverse City, Michigan, told the Free Press, "One local legend is that someone placed it on the ice one winter, and the car fell through as the ice thinned." Regardless, this just goes to show—you never know what you'll find your next project. And that was in Auto Week, but I've also seen the article in another location. And it seemed like the car had been cleaned out a bit. It wasn't like a full-blown, intact car. Items had been removed from it before it was sank. And that's the way to do it. I had to make it. I had to make it environmentally safe. Yeah.
1: And you notice how clear the visibility, the water visibility
0: around that was. That is beautiful. Yeah, I think up at Traverse City that that way they got some pretty consistent clear visibility up there. Another place where you'll find things underwater, we have $2 million in upgrades are slated for the White Star Park. Gibsonburg in Ohio, the Sandusky County Park District is planning a special ceremony this month to celebrate the start of a pair of improvement projects at White Star Park. Park Director Andrew Brown said district plans to complete a $775,000 water sewer extension project at White Star in conjunction with the county's Sanitary engineering commissioner's office will bring water from Gibsonburg and send sewer discharge back to the village for treatment. A second $1.3 million project will bring four new buildings to White Star, a new restroom at the campground, scuba, barn, and beach areas, and an ADA accessible shower at the campground, concessions area on the beach. We want this to be closer to the parking lot, Brown said, with the new additions of the White Star beach area. The foundation has already been laid for the restrooms, Brown said. He said White Star Campground facilities will feature four shower stalls and men and women bathrooms in addition to the ADA accessible shower. Brown said the scuba area building is scheduled for completion this spring of 2019 and will include six restrooms. A group of Sandusky County Restorers of Antique Power Scrap plans to make a donation to the Park District for the White Star Barn improvements. The Park District goals have the campground's barn site constructed and completed by Labor Day. For the new buildings, about half of the $1.3 million will be funded through the State Park District's wetlands mitigation fund and half from a federal grant. Spear Brothers Incorporated is conductor for the Water Sewer Extension Project. The project is be financed through the 20-year Ohio Development Authority loan ceremony to celebrate the two projects set for 2 p.m. on May 24th at White Star Beach area. And our friend of the show, Rich Sinewick, who his dive shop operates the uh, concession at white star has got to be pretty excited i we've we've talked to him a few times over the years and he's been saying how they've been working towards this project so congratulations uh, i still have to find a i still have to get out there have you been the white star in a while no i have not i have not dove the quarry since the salisbury quarry day you say salisbury is that the what it was called that's before a,
1: that, that, no that's a defunct one now that uh
0: they go in cycles, it
1: seems like. They they operate 20, 30 years, and then they sort of go. Somebody has a better idea for the use of the
0: property. Yeah, because you're not going to get rich running a dive operation.
1: No. I like to say, you know, the way you make a, a, a million-dollar shipwreck, you know, looking for shipwrecks is to have two to start with.
0: Yeah. <laughs> well, Karen says she's going to be there Saturday finishing up her underwater archaeology course. I
1: know, and I'm really... I was hoping she'd have been there at the meeting so we could get some information about how that went, training. But now when we see her at the next dive meeting, we'll be able to ask,
0: what about the hands-on training? Yeah. Yeah. So she'll be able to tell us the progress of the foundation. And if I've got this article in the correct order, we have a wreck of the British boats from World War II found off the coast of Iceland. The wreck of British tugboat Empire World was recently found in... Oh, my goodness. There are letters in that name. I don't even know how to say what the letters are, let alone pronounce it.
1: It's found in a bay. That's
0: a well <laughs> easy way to say that. Off the coast of Iceland. How is that? <laughs> it just, those aren't letters. Uh, Faxafloy. Faxafloy. Just off the southwest coast of Iceland. Of course, Iceland. Uh, I can't pronounce. In, if, you're, if you're from Iceland, not that I can pronounce anybody's name, but I certainly can't pronounce yours. Uh, The ship had disappeared on November 17th, 1944, with 17 people aboard, including a sailor married to an Icelandic woman with whom he had a nine-month-old daughter. The British Embassy in Iceland and relatives of said crew members have already been notified. The Coast Guard found the shipwreck in the end of October. Uh, I said October, it's April. How do I get October from April? From the end of April, one of its vessels was sailing across the bay, the crew aboard the spotted unidentified mounds at the bottom of the sea where they believed could possibly have been the remains of a ship. Since there have been no records of shipwreck in the area, Coast Guard later sent a vessel, uh, Baldur, which is usually employed for a hydrographic survey to examine the mounds with, with a self-controlled submarine. It was only after a second tentative of immersion with the underwater camera. However, the crew managed to confirm the remnants found belonged to an Empire world. The faded Empire World is connected there. The freighter; Go- <laughs> these aren't letters. Gotafoss and the tanker Schirven, which were sunk by German submarine in 1944, whose story is well known. The Coast Guard writes. However, not many people know about the tugboat that was sent from Reykjavik to assist the tanker. Although Schirven had been severely damaged by a German torpedo, it stayed afloat for some time before drifting off in flames after. Empire World was sent out for help, the tugboat disappeared, and nothing was heard of until now seventy four years later. Despite speculations, the Coast Guard is unsure what happened to Empire World, for instance, whether it met the same fate as Shivin. No records of the tugboat being sank by submarine or found by German authorities, prompting the coast to look in Coast Guard to look into weather conditions as a possible cause. No signs of collisions with a torpedo or a naval mine have been found either, making the misery. Miserable Destiny of Empire World, quite a mystery.
1: The pictures of the area and the seas and the surrounding
0: terrain, sounds like that's going to be a very cold dive. I don't know. I I know Iceland is supposed to be greener than Greenland, but just with ice in the name, uh, it's not exactly what I'm going to think of as a tropical vacation. Now this next article is I had it loaded up, and now it, it crashed, and it's reloading, so see how long that takes. That's usually a sign that they were trying to stream video or or something
1: well that's you're talking about the human bones found washed up on Kent beaches, yeah, or from historic shipwreck. I' go ahead and do that one yeah, go ahead and just set up bones have been washed ashore on the Kent beaches, which are thought to be from the local historic shipwreck. The gruesome discoveries have been made on two popular beaches following recent storms and gales. And uh, the interesting picture looks like a femur in really good shape. Uh, You could use it for a crutch if you're a short person. Uh, The bone was washed up on Sandwich Bay. Another leg bone was found on the Esplanade, um, and it followed a stormy weather at the end of April. Uh, Other discoveries include worked timbers and oak Plant planks, main finds have been found on the Kent coast inshore from the notorious Goodwin Sands, which is a large sandbar which has claimed countless ships over the centuries. Um, Gentlemen from the Datch and Sandwich Coastal Finds Facebook group made the discovery at Sandwich Bay. So if you go there, you're going to be able to see a lot more pictures. Uh, they also said a let's see another femur bone was also found, which was 43 centimeters, and I don't know my metrics. Anybody can guess on that one. Anyway, they believe the bones may have been one of the items that uh, is being washed ashore from shipwrecks in the waters off the bay. About two years ago, we started to get large ship timbers coming ashore. They had not been attached by marine bores, so they must have been buried deep in the sand for a long period of time. This is one part of the bay. Where timber is washing up and other shipwreck material, I have found a flagon. I assume it was a drinking vessel dating back to the 1700s. Onion bottles, and I have to look what what that is. I don't know what an onion bottle is. Shoe leather and uh, quite a few bones. Although you can't tell if they're all human, uh, they knew the you, uh, femur was human straight away though from its uh the shape and form. In this particular area, I think the seabed has been disturbed, and there is erosion and shipwrecks being exposed. The tests are going uh, to determine ongoing to determine the age of the bones, though they are not thought to be recent. The bones are being carbon dated to determine their age and history. Detectives from a archaeological society in Canterbury are carrying out examination. Uh, there is nothing that the state to suggest there are suspicious circumstances surrounding the find. Now, if that were off Detroit or Something like that, it might be. It said the Goodman Sands are a 10-mile-long sandbank at the southern end of the North Sea, lying six miles off of Kent, and is thought more than 2,000 ships and countless lives have been lost in that area, especially since they're close to the major shipping lanes and ports of Dover, Deal, and Ramsgate. Notable shipwrecks include the HMS Sterling Castle in 1703, VOC ship, I'm not sure what VOC is, you know what that stands for? On Rothwick in 1740, the FS Montrose in 1914, and the Southern Goodwin lightship that broke free from its anchor moorings during a storm in 1954.
0: Is, is VOC so, a vessel of the crowd, maybe?
1: Ah, that could be. Uh, several naval battles have been fought nearby, including the Battle of Goodwin Sands in 1652. And the Battle of Dover Strait in 1917. Sounds like a lot of good archaeological possibilities exist. Yeah. A Kent police uh, person spoke officers carried out inquiries after human bones were discovered in the beach or on the beach. And it was on May 1st and May 4th, the last group that were found, which was after the storms of April. So far, they said nothing at this stage is to suggest suspicious circumstances surrounding the find. Now, if they'll f- they find those are not old bones, I think they'll change their mind.
0: Yeah. Well, the the old bones, I mean, how many people were lost in the wreck? Do they have any idea? Well, in that area, they
1: said 2,000 wrecks, oh, and wow. they're talking thousands of people.
0: Yeah, I guess over time you're going to get that. So if you're going to ditch a body, you want to ditch it there because they'll just think it's an old bone. I didn't say that. Uh, on the... Onion bottle, I pasted something in Discord, you can take a look at them, and I guess if you think of an onion, kind of in, in like a nylon bag, the shape of that is kind of what an onion bottle looks like. Did I lose you? I must have got
1: the wrong item, because I just got back to Blue 3.
0: Blue 3?
1: The ten fifteen 15 foot snorkel slash air supply device from last week.
0: Oh, i will uh click on the live show chat i'm gonna say where I'm at that way I'm not gonna screw this up <laughs> okay here i'll 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 paste it into the the room you're in you're in the general room oh i like those yeah i i i'm not i mean I've seen similar ones in fact i as a kid I used to have one in my room uh, somebody turned it into a candle holder, but I didn't realize it so they called it. it was an onion bottle. Because the ones I had seen would have like a wicker basket woven around the bottom of the bottle. Which seems to be a lot of a lot of work for a bottle that somebody's just gonna empty right away. Like to find some of those in the river. Yeah. And the next article we have up is a shipwreck mystery solved thanks to an eight hundred year old made in China label. The piece of pottery has helped archaeologists put together a fascinating new detail about a medieval ship that sank off the coast of Indonesia. The wooden hull of the ship, which sank in the Java Sea, has long since disintegrated, but its cargo offers vital clues about the vessel. Fishermen discovered the wreck site in the 1980s, and archaeologists have spent decades analyzing objects found in the seabed. Salvage com- company Pacific Sea Resources recovered artifacts in the 1990s and donated them to Chicago's Field Museum. The ship, which was transporting ceramics and luxury goods, is now revealing its secrets thanks to new analysis of the cargo. Experts published their findings in a Journal of Archaeological Science Reports. Initial investigation in the 1990s dated the ship to be mid-13th century, but we found evidence that it's probably a century older than that, said Lisa Nazolik, an archaeologist at the Field Museum in Chicago and the study's lead author in a statement. 800 years ago, someone put a label on the ceramics that essentially says made in China. Because of the particular place mentioned, we were able to date the shipwreck better. The ship's cargo included ceramic marks and inscriptions that may indicate the from Jinanging Fu, a district in China. Experts, however, note that after the Mongolian invasion of China, around 1278, the area was reclassified as Jingjing Lu. The slight change in the name tipped Nizolek and her colleagues off the shipwreck may have occurred earlier than the late 1200s and as early as 1162, they said in a statement. The likelihood of a ship from the Jenning Lu era carrying old pottery is slim, according to Nizelik. They were probably about 100,000 pieces of ceramics on board, which unlikely a merchant would have paid to store those for a long prior to shipment. They were probably made not long before the ship sank, she explained. In addition to ceramics, the ship was also carrying elephant tusks, probably used in medicine or art. Sweet-smelling resin, which could have been used for incense or for caulking ships, was also found. Previous carbon dating of the tusks and resin had dated direct between 700 and 750 years ago. However, improved carbon dating techniques tell a different story. We got the results back and learned the resin and tusk samples were older than previously thought. We were excited. We suspected that based on descriptions of ceramics and conservations with colleagues in China and Japan. It was also great to have all these different types of data coming together to support it. Dating shipwreck to 800 rather than 700 years ago, significant according to archaeologists. This was a time when Chinese merchants became more active in the maritime trade, more aligned upon overseas routes than on overland silk routes. She said the shipwreck occurred at a time of an important transition. Shipwreck sites offer fascinating glimpse of the past. Last year, for example, experts announced the discovery of a century-old anchor, Caribbean, believed to be from the Christopher Columbus ships. And then they go into other links, which I think they're just trying to distract us. Interesting how they were able to uh get more information on something that had been discovered quite a while ago. And are are we to that point where we get to talk about stuff from outer space? This article are octopuses from outer space. Octopuses are really, really weird master disguise. They camouflage your skin and failing flailing eight-armed bodies and dive hundreds of feet below the surface of the sea. Intelligent creatures have even been known to predict the odd sports results. Now a group of 33 scientists from respected institutions around the world has suggested these bizarre creatures descend from an organic alien material. The research published in the Journal of Progress in Biospheres and Molecular Biology ties a remarkable rise of octopuses and their cephalopod cousins in the theory of pansmira. This is a hotly debated concept. Various versions suggest microbes, viruses, and even tiny forms like the tardigrade may travel dormant from space rocks to space rock via collisions, eventually making their way to new planets. On a habitable planet like our own, they might wake up and thrive. Mass extinction events have killed a vast number of species through history. One of the events took place 544 years million years ago, a few million years later, the planet began to see an explosion in critters now preserved in fossil records. It's a little imagination to consider the or, me, pre-Cambrian mass extinction events were correlated with the impact of giant life-bearing comets, subsequent seeding of the Earth with new cosmic-derived cellular organisms and viral genes, the author wrote. In the case of octopuses, the author thinks cryo-preserved eggs could have hitched a ride on Earth on icy bodies. Indeed, they wrote, the principle applies a sudden appearance of the fossil records of pretty well all major life forms. Tiny, multicellular critters in the form of eggs, embryos, and seeds might have sprung from Earth after a voyage through space. And they go on. (laughs) Well, I don't think it's impossible. uh, Somebody's got to call me a little bit of a skeptic on this one. Is this how fake news gets started? It may be. I'm, that's. I keep looking. Is that like a joke or some punchline? Because they're taking it as very serious. I. I think it's a valid. If you're a researcher, it's okay to have a theory saying this is possible. But I'm not seeing anything in this article which shows that it happens. I mean, I think yes, eight limbs when everything else isn't. Or that yeah, I'm. I'm not buying it yet. Need a little bit more information. And then we have a Photo of the Week article. Mac, did you want to cover that one?
1: Okay, I didn't know if you finally got it up there. Yeah,
0: it's called A Hidden World
1: 30 Meters Below Budapest. And it's uh, actually more of a little video tour. It's a mining legacy. Countless buildings in Budapest, including the 1902 Neo-Gothic Parliament Building, built with limestone mired or mined from the Kobana District, meaning the stone mine district on the pest side of the river. Symmetries of mining started in the Middle Ages and dwindling down towards the second half of the 19th century, carved out an underground cellar system of more than 32 kilometers around 30 meters below street level. When wells and chambers in the lower parts of the mine flooded in the mid-1990s, the local government asked a small group of divers to clean up the underwater areas. The divers realized some of the chambers could be perfect for recreational diving, switching over here's a picture of a guy all suited up walking down some stairs into the water and the water looks very clear. One of the regular divers is local telecommunications technician uh, yeah, is a local telecommunications technician who started diving to recover from a ruptured spleen, broken ribs and a crap- cracked hip after falling from a rooftop in two thousand three. When a colleague suggested he take up scuba diving to help heal his injuries and rebuild his confidence to work on high-rise towers, he started diving off the coast of Taiwan and Egypt, not knowing that he could dive below his own city just four kilometers from his home. And neighbor first mentioned scuba diving beneath Budapest in 2009. I was very eager to find out how this could all be possible. He made contact with the master diving instructor with the local company, and I swear that says Paprika Divers. <laughs> who introduced him to the dive sites below the city? I, you're not the only one who could butcher names. <laughs> sure, that's what it says. One the first picture after he gets into the water has him um, uh, very excellent visibility and lighting, uh, swimming down around a spiral staircase, uh, staircase, and this is a, a metal one, not a wooden one, or uh, one a one that goes wall to wall, sort of open around it. The first picture, and it's again clear. Uh, Another little paragraph. This is a video section. When you hang weightless beneath your home city, you're constantly reminded of its sister. Without this, Budapest on the surface would never have been the same. And here's a picture of him. Uh, these are half submerged alleyways and causeways. So looks like you could do, um, like Bonterre, uh, Bonterre Mine. Yeah. That if you need to, you can come up. It's not an enclosed. And, uh, again, the visibility looks great. They have a lot of surface lighting, which is reflecting down and uh it looks quite entertaining. That yeah, looks and like a good it, it spot. Yeah, it doesn't say anything about how much it costs. It says, <laughs> um, "Oh, here's another another section shows pictures of what it looked like underwater. The schematics to the hidden world. There are four dive sites in the abandoned mine. Only one called the Park Well is accessible to divers with basic open water certification. This is the chambers and staircases at the park have open areas of fresh air above them, and it's safe to dive there." The other flooded wells are enclosed and are only accessible by experienced divers with advanced special skill certification. I would imagine that meant cavern and cave. The water temperature remains at approximately 12 degrees C, which we were told was what 52 degrees. Uh, yeah, somewhere around there. Yep. Uh, at the park, divers can dive 17 meters below the water surface, which is 47 meters below the street level. It takes up to 40 minutes to explore the chambers where. Disused mining and factory equipment can still be seen. You can actually see how the stones were mined. And from there it goes on about Budapest. And that does sort of remind you of Bon pierre Mine, where you go
0: down and look at the mining. It does. Well, well, I couldn't get the article to load when I pasted it into Discord. It did show me that photo of him going by the spiral staircase. And that looks very cool. Well, I think that does it for Scuba News. Well, we had a packed section for tonight, which is probably to make up for, with all the rain, I doubt anybody's been able to get in the water recently.
1: Well, actually, people have dove 16. Uh, We got reports on it there at the dive meeting the other night.
0: Yep, Kevin said that uh, some of the platforms are in need of repair. They're still floating and functional, but they certainly could use some, some maintenance, so there's some discussions going on, and how that's going to be done.
1: Right, and I believe they also got out this. Uh, golly, I can't remember, if it was even today. Thirsty Thursday. Up, uh, off of South Haven, up at the rock pile.
0: Ah, well, you, yeah, it's you, if the other large area. Yeah, because you yeah. want to stay out of the rivers and the and in the uh, inland creeks because it's all uh, we've had tons of water. But if you can get out in the Lake Michigan a little bit, then. There's probably some good diving going on. I don't recall what he said the
1: visibility was, but I know the river is not uh, the place to be right
0: Yeah, the river's going to take a couple weeks to settle down, and by that time you're going to be past Memorial Day, and it's going to be packed with boaters and fishermen, so we're pretty much out of the river until fall. Yeah. And then I got to, uh, since it was raining this weekend, I decided that since I couldn't mow my lawn, to help a fellow muddy out with their boat, so we went over to Karen's. Bob was there and Ted and myself, and we went and uh, worked on uh, her boat, put a nice dive ladder off the back and uh, got good ways in the progress of a windlass, which is always appreciated by the volunteer crew of a boat. The boat you want to be on is one of the windlass because hauling an anchor with 300 feet of line out can be quite a chore. Uh, But uh, she's got a nice boat, just needs a little bit more work on, and I think it'll be Great Lake worthy here coming up.
1: I know she's anxious for the season to get started.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's 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 you, right now the, the money's been all going out, and you want to see some return on your investment, which is to actually get out and, and do some diving. And then as we talked about last week, we have the Mermaid Fest. Was it Mega Mermaid? I'm going to just slaughter names today.
1: Yep, starts the 25th through the 28th in South Haven. Probably the key items most of uh, people will like will be the 26, which is the mermaid. Yes. Uh, visibility, being able to see them swimming. But that's also Pirate Week up there in South Haven. Arr. So it's going to be freaking
0: crowded. It <laughs> always is. Uh, so what? They do have some good shows. What can go wrong with pirates and mermaids? I'm, I'm, I think we had an article
1: earlier in this program about that.
0: <laughs> yes. So I think the pirates are all going to need some sensitivity training before their mermaids and mermen show up. So uh, we'll have to look at that. They are looking for volunteers. So if you're going to be in the area and you want to volunteer, uh, you can visit their website. And then at some point I'm check- I'm going to get I was underwater. Going to say, it's always good to check the website because
1: they have a multitude of activities that are going on uh like to the key items for me is the free went and that's looking at the mermaids but they have (laughs) presentations they've got events so take a look at the website i think you will be oh not to mention really good pictures really nice pictures of the mermaids that in itself is worth looking at so go to the uh, site and check it out
0: uh do you have a dive story for the week well, I had one, but we've been on quite a while, and this is a long one again. It's another one of those stories. Okay, so let's see. Yeah, we're we're approaching. We're at about a, an hour and fifteen minutes, and when I pull out the dead airspace, we'll be getting there. So, is there any plugging you want to do before we go on?
1: No, I already did it. With talking about the uh, mermaids.
0: Yep. And then if Kevin was on, he'd he'd tell you to go and appreciate your local librarians. And visit your libraries, because uh, once they're gone, they're not coming back. And you also want to help out your local dive shops. It'd be This time of year, they're counting on you. If you're not going in and using them now, uh, it's going to be awful hard to get air fills when the dive shops are no longer around. And you should have already
1: been there, because you need to get your regulators maybe serviced, your gear checked out. Because if you're not starting to dive now,
0: you're not going to be diving. It's no. maybe. Yep. So I've got to go oh, pick up, June. Pick up up, pick up my tank. So that's uh, something on the on the list, and yeah, you need to get your visas done. If you're not, you're a little late. Uh, yeah, that's gonna be. Uh, I'm. I'm. We were talking about the, at the end of the dive meeting that at the Great Lakes again. The weather has just not been real convenient for getting out there in the lake. So we're hoping that it'll be summer last year. That once it does settle down, we get a good two or three months of nice weather to get out there, and maybe do some lawn mowing out there. Lake.
1: Well, Bob got out there uh, off the DNR launch, and if you looked at the pictorials, there is no pier because they're underwater, water so <laughs> high and fast. So you had to have hip boots or your dry suit on or wet suit on before you even could launch your boat.
0: Ugh. Yeah, the river river's up a tad bit, and then and then our incredibly local news, uh, the Bering Springs Dam, which is here in my hometown, is uh, uh, they're going to be lowering it an extra six inches, six inches a day for the next week to be able to do some maintenance as a result of the flood so i'm betting that somewhere along they think they they had a little bit of scrubbing going on that wore away some of the concrete so they need to evaluate that and maybe do some hydraulic concrete repairs to uh, make to continue to ensure that dam doesn't fail nothing worse than a dam that fails that big wall especially of water going down, down the river yeah if you're downstream especially yeah could be a little upset and the trailer park has already been flooded out once this year already. Yeah, they they can end up condemning, I think, about 20 trailers at least in that area. So I just hope that before they let somebody put trailers in the same spots that they they at least try to raise them up another foot or so. Well, that won't do, you know, your 100-year floods. At least it would get you away from the 30- and 40-year ones. And then, as always, we certainly appreciate your support. If you'd like to show and like to help out, Go on to our website, www.scubaobsessed.com, click on over to the Patreon links, and uh, give us a little bit of donation. Any amount is appreciated. $3 or more will get you early access to the show notes. Uh, We understand if you can't, but we certainly hope you can. So I think we are to that time of the show. Well, I am sitting back, I'm relaxed, and I'm ready. Well, this one's going to be kind of dangerous. It's another one from Rod Down Under, and... I'm a little concerned when I don't understand the punchlines, so probably what happens in those situations is somebody is laughing their head off at the end, but I'm not sure I get it, so maybe you'll have to explain it to me. So here we go. A rabbit walks into a pub and says to the barman, can I have a pint of beer and a ham and cheese toasty? The barman is amazed, and but gives the rabbit a pint of beer and a ham and cheese toasty, the rabbit drinks the beer, eats a toasty, and then leaves. The following night the rabbit returns and asks for a pint of beer and a ham and cheese toasty. The barman now intrigued by the rabbit and the extra drinkers in the pub because the word gets around, gives the rabbit a pint and a toasty. The rabbit consumes them and leaves. The next night the pub is packed. In walks rabbit and says a pint and a pint of beer and a ham and cheese toasty, please, Barman. The crowd is hushed as the barman gives the rabbit his pint and toasty and then bursts into applause as the rabbit wolfs them down. The next night is standing room only in the pub. Coaches have been laid on for the crowds of patrons. at Oh, couches. I said coaches. Coaches couches have been laid on for the crowds of patrons attending. The barman is making more money in one week than he did all last year. In walks the rabbit and says, a, a pint of beer and a ham and cheese toasty, please, barman. The barman says, I'm sorry, rabbit, old mate, old mucker, but we are right out of ham and cheese toasties. The rabbit looks aghast. The crowd is quieted, quieted to almost a whisper. When the barman clears his throat, nervously says, We do have a very nice cheese and onion toasty. The rabbit looks him in the eye and says, Are you sure I will like it? The masses bated breath and ears shatteringly silent. The barman with a roguish smile says, Do you think I would let down one of my best friends? I know you'll love it. Okay, says the rabbit. I'll have a pint of beer and a cheese and onion toasty. The pub erupts with glee as a rabbit quaffs down the beer and guzzles a toasty and then he waves a crowd and leaves never to return one year later in the now impoverished public house the barman who has only served four drink tonight and three of them were his calls time when he's clearing down the now empty bar he sees a small white form floating above the bar the barman says who are you to which he is answered i am the ghost of the rabbit who used to frequent your pub The barman says, I remember you. You made me famous. You would come in every night and have a pint and beer and a ham and cheese toasty. Mass has come to see you, and this place was famous. Rabbit says, Yes, I know. The barman says, I remember in your last night we didn't have a ham and cheese toasty. You had a cheese and onion one instead. Rabbit said, Yes, and you promised I would love it. The barman said, You never came back. What happened? I died, said the rabbit. No, said the barman. What from? After a short pause, the rabbit said, Mixing Me Toasties. And I'm and I'm not sure. Is that funny? Mixing Me Toasties? Uh,
1: I'm not sure. Do I it need to... Boring, but I'm not sure of the punchline either. <laughs> not either. Do okay, I... where's our interpreter?
0: Do I need to We're do it... From should, should I do it with a Scottish accent? Is that what it needed? Scottish, British... I just don't think I have an accent to pull it off.
1: Where's Crocodile Dundee when we need
0: him? <laughs> Mixing me toasties. Nick, Nick, do I need to say it quicker? Mixing me toasties? I don't know.
1: I don't
0: either. Now, he's probably laughing his ass off, but I... I we'll have to wait. To tell us if it was funny or not. <laughs> <laughs> well, a <they're> real good lead, <laughs> know, I'm going to go <laughs> to the pub <club> and watch <laughs> that rabbit. I would watch him. <laughs> so, on that note go out there and get wet and stay safe.